The reason the United States is is in a decline is because capitalism has abandoned it. Capitalism's core went to China and the BRICS countries because the wages were cheaper, the regulation was less, and the markets were growing. And that has been the rule of capitalism always. The American empire is declining, according to our next guest, Richard Wolff. What can be done to reform our capitalist system, if indeed it is the fault of our system that the U.S. is in decline. Why are the BRICS nations de-dollarizing, and what is the alternative global currency that may replace the U.S. dollar at the end of this de-dollarization road? What is the solution to AI laying off millions of people around the world in the future? And importantly, is our society becoming more Marxist? These are the themes of our discussion with Richard Wolff, the founder of Democracy at Work and a professor of economics who has taught at leading schools, including Yale, the City University of New York, and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Dr. Wolf started his economics training at Harvard and Stanford universities and later received his master's and doctor of philosophy and economics at Yale. He is the author of several books, including Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism, Understanding Marxism, and his newest book coming out later this year, Understanding Capitalism Critically. Dr. Wolf, a pleasure to host you today on the David Lynn Report. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much, David. I'm glad to be here. Dr. Wolf, you've been a proponent of socialism as perhaps a solution to a declining American empire, which we'll talk about later in this interview, the root causes and implications of this decline. Uh, but straight off the bat, I'm, I'm predicting that not everybody watching this interview will uh, agree with everything you say in regards to this solution and this idea. Uh, but that's why we're having this conversation, because the purpose of my channel and the mission of what I'm doing is to educate investors and help us all become better investors and more knowledgeable people. And we can't become more educated if we're all stuck constantly in the same echo chamber of ideas. And so understanding other points of views, alternative views, is paramount to expanding our horizons. With that said, Dr. Wolf, I'm going to start with... This question. A lot of people I've talked to, pundits, analysts, have commented that the U.S. is becoming more and more Marxist. Is that true? Have you observed any evidence of this? Yes, I think basically that's true. And let me explain. Um, the reason that Marxism has its bad name in this country and why most people are either unaware or a bit frightened or maybe both uh, about it has to do with the Cold War. Uh, it was quite different before 1945. I want to remind everyone that World War II was a war in which the United States had as its ally the Soviet Union. If during the 1940s, early 40s, you went to a U.S. post office, you would have purchased your stamps under a, a sign which had a a cartoon figure of Uncle Sam in his typical top hat, arm in arm with Uncle Joe. Uh, that was Joseph Stalin, whose picture was in the American post office, because we were allies. Uh, it was not only possible then to talk about Marxism, but everybody was doing it. They were doing it in the 1930s because we had the Great Depression, and they were doing it in the 1940s, the first half, because we were allied with the Soviet communists against the German fascists. Um, after the war, everything changed. The United States went into a Cold War with the 
former ally of the Soviet Union, and everything having to do with the evil other, in this case Russia, which included their commitment to Marxism and socialism, became taboo in the United States. It went so far, and this is a critique of the United States I'm offering, it went so far that you didn't pick up a book by a Marxist, you didn't read Karl Marx, and that's foolish. And that's kind of embarrassing. I say that as a person born and uh, lived and worked all my life in the United States. But to not understand the most important critique of, of capitalism that has ever been produced over the last 150 years is not an achievement. It's an embarrassing flaw. It's kind of putting your hands over your eyes in the imagination that you will therefore not see the problem. So from roughly 1945 to about 2008, a long time, half a century, it was taboo. Let me give you a concrete example. I was a student at Harvard University. I went there for four years, got my bachelor's degree. Don't mind telling you magna cum laude on top of it. I was never assigned a single word by Karl Marx. I took economics courses, history courses, sociology courses. My professors talked to us as if this whole idea, this whole philosophy, this whole way of thinking critically about capitalism didn't exist. At Yale, where I got my PhD in economics, I was in the same classes with a, a woman you may have heard of, uh, my classmate, Janet Yellen. We, we took the same courses from the same professors, reading the same books. We were not ever exposed to Marxist anything. And, the, and the, the work of our political leaders is poorer because they were never exposed to a critical perspective. I got interested because the questions I asked about economics were not answered to my satisfaction. I found my way to the Marxist books in the library at Harvard and Yale. I read them and I learned a lot. And ever after that, to this day, I am not going to run away from the intellectual debt I have to the critical approach. And let me put it to you in, in, in a parable. If you were a professor like me, and you gave your students an assignment. There's a family up the street, mother, father, two children. One of the children thinks that the family is the greatest thing they ever could encounter, and the other one thinks the family they live in is a psychological basket case. And I gave the student the assignment, go up there and write an essay. Would the student, about the family, would the student talk to only one of the two children? I would hope not, because that would be inadequate intellectual openness. You talk to both of them. You can draw whatever conclusions you want, but you don't close off one source of understanding. That's stupid, which is the nicest word I can think of it. So yes, over the last 20 years, especially after the crisis of 2008 and nine, more and more Americans and more and more people around the world are aware that capitalism has a lot of problems associated to it. And interestingly, particularly young people are open to looking at places like Marxism to see what explanations of capitalism's flaws 
might be of interest and might have insights you could use. And I think that's the theme of our discussion today, which is uh, the role of Marxism in not just Marxist societies, but perhaps our society, whether there could be a place for this and whether or not capitalism in the U.S. needs reform. Dr. Wolf, it's been a while since I read the Communist Manifesto as part of my college reading, so my memory might be a bit hazy, but correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think he, I don't think Marx specifically said that uh, a Marxist society or a communist society, collectivism, would necessarily lead to totalitarianism. And in fact, I think he believed that the United Kingdom would be the first country to adopt Marxism. I, it didn't, didn't happen the way he predicted, but uh, the point is that a lot of the countries that we've observed that have adopted communism turned out to be authoritarian regimes. And I think that's probably part of where the fear of communism comes from. Why is that? Why is it that the most dominant or the most prominent examples of communist countries were also dictatorships? Well, again, there's a bit of a confusion here. Marx referred to himself mostly as a socialist. They really weren't things called communists way back then, or they were very, very few. And his use of the term communist manifesto was to be provocative, was to get attention, which was very successful. Uh, but it was not an argument. There were no communist political parties of any importance at that time. And most of the time when he wrote about alternatives, he used the word socialism. I'd also want to remind you that both uh, Russia in, under the Soviet Union and uh, the People's Republic of China tend to use the word socialism. Uh, Xi Jinping refers to, to socialism with Chinese characteristics to define his society. Lenin and the leaders of the Soviet Union also used the word socialism to describe it. And for example, USSR stands for Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. They did not want to talk about communism because for them, that was a future they might someday arrive at, but not one that they were in. All right, so let's deal with socialism. The, probably the most widely known examples of socialism are what we call Scandinavian or Western European socialism. Sweden, Norway, Finland, France, Germany. These have governments, for example, the government of Germany today, the largest political party in the government of Germany right now is the German Socialist Party, the same party that's been the Germanist Socialist Party in Germany for over 150 years. Uh, the Spanish government is a government of the Socialist Party of Spain. The Portuguese government is a coalition of the Portuguese Socialist Party, the Portuguese Communist Party, and the Portuguese Green Party. Now, if Americans don't know this, and most of them don't, that has to do with our media, which is another conversation, but they don't quite cover uh, this side of the world. So in those countries that I listed, there are no authoritarianisms of the sort people often associate. They want to focus on those governments which have been authoritarian, 
and make them as though they're the only story of socialism. But that would be a, equivalent to me saying, uh, picking out all the dictatorships in Latin America, all the dictatorships in Asia and Africa that are not socialist, that are clearly capitalist, and talking about that as the example. Or I could even be a little more daring. I could give you France. France has been in total turmoil for the last half year, an ungovernable country. Why? Because the president of that country, Macron, has rammed through depriving the, the, the French working class of years of their paid for pensions. And when he couldn't get it through the parliament because he couldn't get enough votes, he used an obscure clause of the of the constitution in France to ram that through. That's classic authoritarian government. And which is why 70% of the French people are on the sides of the demonstrators, not on the side of the government. Authoritarianism is something I don't like and I don't want and has nothing to do with my interest in Marxism. I have to recognize that there are socialist governments that go in that direction. But I also want to remind everyone that socialists have no monopoly on authoritarianism, uh, to say the least. All right. I'm going to make a statement and please Good. disagree or challenge this statement if you Good. if you like or, or agree with it. Uh, the statement is as follows. Capitalist societies have always preserved democratic values and personal liberties, while a society that adopts socialist values will eventually fall into the trap of authoritarianism. Yeah, no, I, I would, of course, uh, completely disagree uh, with all of that. And there's also, there's many ways to go at it, but let me give you one example in which there's an, a peculiar forgetting of history in making judgments of that sort. The world has been capitalist now for two or 300 years. That's all. Capitalism, like every other system, had to be born out of something it wasn't. Feudalism in Europe or slavery in other parts of the world. Every other system has been born, evolved over time, and then died away. My criticism of capitalism understands that it too is a system that was born, and it too is a system that has evolved and therefore, the next stage of it is to pass away, which I believe it is doing. But the history is important to keep in mind. The first effort to construct a socialist economic system in a country is barely 100 years ago, 1917, in Russia. When the Russian Revolution succeeded, it was the only country on earth that had made that move. And it was immediately attacked with the effort to destroy it. Let me remind you of a history. The Ru Russian Revolution happens in 1917. Within a year, four countries invaded the Soviet Union to destroy their new government. The French, the British, the Japanese, and the United States. 10,000 troops invaded Russia from the United States alone, plus many more from the other three countries. No Russian soldier has ever landed in the United States on any comparable mission or any mission at all. The United States made an effort to destroy that revolution. 
and they were isolated until 1934. From 1917 to 1934, the United States refused to recognize the country, invaded it, tried to destroy the revolution. But wow, to say that the country reverted to an authoritarian leader is kind of odd if you forget the history. This is not about socialism that you have the authoritarian. This is about the reality that you're surrounded on all sides by enemies who are willing to attack you and you have to mobilize your people. Let me give you a a, a current example right now, right? Ukraine is fighting a war against Russia. The leader in Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky, has banned all opposition criticism, banned newspapers, banned other political parties, arrested his political opponents. He is the characteristic authoritarian leader. But the United States doesn't say a word about that. Why? In part, because he's attacked by Russia, and that situation kind of gives him a pass in the American media on all those kinds of issues, because he's understood to be fighting for his life. Yeah, but he's not the only one with that story to tell. No sooner did the the Communist Party of China win the Civil War in 1949 than the United States went to war uh in Korea, right next door. Does anyone miss the message? The Chinese are likewise, as the Russians had been, surrounded. Let me give you two other examples, Cuba and and Venezuela. They were attacked by the United States, literally in the case of... uh, Cuba in 1961, and then again in the arrest and magical mystery departure of Chavez in um, Venezuela. If you're the pariah, if you're the new economic system emerging in the old one as the old one is dying, you're going to get some pretty ugly confrontations, and those have to be how shall I say it, factored in if you're going to understand authoritarian societies. I'd like to come back to uh, some of these themes later uh, in in the discussion where we talk about your new book, Understanding Capitalism Critically. It's a very interesting title. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about your writings here. But first, I want to talk about a more contemporary issue, which is the issue of de-dollarization. As you've discussed on your own channel, which I recommend everybody uh, take a look. I'll put a link in the description below. You've discussed this trend of de-dollarization in China and the other BRICS countries potentially working on an alternative global currency that may or may not be backed by the yuan. It could be a basket of currencies. It could be based on something else. Uh, Before we discuss the implications of this trend, I'm going to ask you a simple question. Why? Why is this trend happening? Why are the other major emerging economies de-dollarizing? Well, I think there are two reasons. The first one, and I don't mean these in order of importance, but the first one is that if your currency is the global currency, it it operates like an immense subsidy to your country. Think of it in the simplest way. You can buy from other countries the goods and services they have poured their creative effort into the wine from France, the software program from uh, Korea, whatever. And what do you pay for it? 
Little green pieces of paper, the U.S. dollar, cost you nothing to produce. You can send them the dollars over there, and because it's the global currency, the local bank will keep some of the dollars. It will trade into its central bank some of those dollars, but they won't come back in the purchase of goods and services. In a normal situation of two countries, neither of whose currencies are global currencies, the only way they can pay for the import of goods and services is by exporting alternative goods and services that the other side of the party of the exchange wants. So it is an enormous subsidy that, for example, the world traded in oil, an enormously important product using dollars because Saudi Arabia and other countries uh, created the petrodollar economy in the world. And the United States came out of World War II as the new global hegemon. By the way, the same thing applies earlier to the British Empire when the British pound sterling played the same kind of role. So other countries want in on that. They don't want to be the ones who have to hold on to somebody else's currency. They want to be the beneficiaries of having their currency play that kind of role, if not instead of the United States dollar, certainly alongside it. All right, that's the first thing. Here's the second one. There is a feeling that the United States, particularly in the last few years, has gone beyond gaining the subsidies. And I, I forgot to mention one more subsidy that's implicit. The rest of the world holds the dollar, but they don't like to hold literally the dollar because it earns them nothing. So you know what they do with all the dollars they have? They lend them back to the United States government. For example, China and Japan are together the number one and number two creditors of the United States. China alone has nearly a, a trillion dollars of U.S. Treasury securities that it owns. So ironically, the United States gets the subsidy of using dollars and then gets a loan of those dollars back to cover its own governmental budget deficits. Other countries want in on this lovely arrangement. But there's a second reason. The United States, because it's a declining empire now, painful as that is for Americans to get wrap their heads around. But in part because of that, the United States made the decision some years ago to weaponize its global currency, its position as the global currency. And you could see it dramatically when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine in February of 2022, the United States seized the assets of, of Russia. It stopped playing the role of, quote, neutral arbiter of the global currency, as if it were above the fray. It's not above the fray now. It's using it. It's sanctioning. It's excluding people from the SWIFT uh, system of dollar payment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Under these circumstances, other countries now have a defensive reason. They don't want the U.S. dollar because it gives the United States power and reach into their economies, taking away some of their sovereignty. 
And now that the United States feels it can sanction literally dozens of countries who trade with Cuba or trade with Iran or trade with China or Russia, and the number keeps growing, there's a defensive impulse. Whoa, we don't want this. You put the the desire to participate together with a defense against the weaponization, and then you have the following realities. And these are important for Americans to cope with. 20 years ago, two-thirds or more of global reserves held by central banks were held in the form of a dollar. A dollar, gold, and maybe a little bit of euros, and possibly a little bit of Japanese yen. Today, less than 45% of global reserves are held in the form of a dollar. It's not a discussion about de-dollarization may happen. De-dollarization has happened and is continuing at a rising pace. Let me give you yet another couple of statistics. If you compare the G7, the United States and its allies, including Canada, Western Europe, and Japan, they now account for about 29% of global GDP. If you take the BRICS, China and its allies, Russia, India, Brazil, South Africa, as well as China, they now account for 32% of the world's GDP. One of them is larger than the other, and the gap between them is getting enormous and fast. The rest of the world has no business putting all their eggs in a dollar basket when the core of that basket is becoming less and less uh, of an economic factor in the global system. There is no, there is no way to pretend that this is not happening. And so you put all these things together, add that the, the, the Saudi Arabian dominance in oil has now switched and the Saudis are making deals to sell oil in a whole host of currencies. And yeah, the dollar cannot play the role it did before. It should never have been expected to continue the desperate effort of the United States to now weaponize it has only given a greater impetus uh, to people to back away around the world. And I think the implications of this and the consequences are going to be big shapers of the American economic situation for many years to come. I'd like to offer a few arguments for why the dollar is still the dominant hegemonic currency of the world. Uh, just in response to some of the statistics that you brought up, uh, global reserve uh Global reserves held in U.S. dollars, 45%. It used to be above 60%, like you mentioned. Yes, it's come down, but I, there is, to my knowledge, no other currency or even basket of currencies that even is remotely close to 45% currently. Uh, the, other, the other point is that uh, several countries in the world have de-dollarized, which is to say that their currencies uh, don't, their domestic currencies don't exist. They just use the U.S. dollar and and use a U.S. dollar as a monetary regime. And so if you go to a lot of Latin American countries, for example, the dollar will be accepted as a de facto currency, whereas the same can't be said of the Chinese yuan or even the euro. I mean, even in Canada where I live, I mean, this is a, this is a far-fetched example, but I, I live in Canada. I just paid the taxi driver in U.S. dollars because I didn't have any Canadian cash on me. 
So, you know, it's still recognized as a form of payment globally, medium of exchange, and perhaps even store of value. How would you respond to these arguments? Well, you know, transitions take time. I am I'm a historian. I'm amazed at how fast it's going. To say, as you just did, and you're right, that 20 years ago, it's by the way, it was closer to 70% than 60, but th- that 20 years ago, it was 70% of world reserves held in dollars, and today it's 45. By historical measure, that's spectacularly fast. Yeah, of course, if you have had the dollar as the dominant world currency for 75 years since the end of World War II, yeah, then people are used to that. Now they're becoming used to the dollar not being all that valuable. And, you know, you can see that in terms of what happened to the British pound. Nobody is anymore holding significant amounts of the British pound because the British empire is gone. And the American empire, as it shrinks, as it is surpassed already by that comparison I made between the G7 and the BRICS, I mean, the direction of change is unmistakable. I mean, just take the first three months of this year, January, February, March. What was the economic rate of growth of GDP in Europe? Nothing. I mean, the negative of Germany, which is now in recession, offset the rest of the of the whole area. No growth at all. What was the growth in the first quarter of the United States GDP? 1.3%. What's the rate of growth in the People's Republic of China? 4.5%. I mean, this is a no-brainer which way the world is going. If you're a society... That that if you're an if you're a, an economic unit, well, let me give you this example. Over the last month, Warren Buffett, his associate Charlie Munger, um, Elon Musk, Jamie Dimon of where are they? They're all in in Beijing. Why are they in Beijing? Because they're there. I'm going to quote you, Warren Buffett, because the tension between the United States and China for quoting Warren Buffett, is stupid. That's the word he used. We need each other. We are one step short in his language of what I'm saying. We are a declining economic reality. They are the growth area. Their wages are lower. Their economic growth is greater. I've been a part of business school education. You teach people in a business school, you want your corporation to succeed, go where the costs are minimal and the rate of growth of your market is maximal. That's your recipe. Figure it out, go there. Well, you know what? That's an argument not to to decouple or de-risk or any of the euphemisms having to do with China. The losses for American companies that have been investing in China for 30 years and that see the economic growth emerging from that part of the world is dictating what they do. The biggest problem for the American politicians who want to build their careers off of China bashing is that they've got the American corporate mega companies on the other side of the issue for them. But these are signs Dollarization is done. It's only now a question of how far it will go down further, whether global reserves will once again be some dollars, some Chinese yuan, some euros, and then a mixture or a basket uh, of alternatives that are being looked into now. 
But the initiative of the global economic, it's unmistakable. The BRICS, there's a dozen countries that have applied to join the BRICS. You know, it, it, it's, it's really quite clear where things are going, except here in the United States. I don't know about Canada, where there's a need to practice what psychologists call denial on an extraordinary scale. And denial never solved anything. So let's let's suppose this forty five percent figure you quoted continues to go down. Suppose in the future we have twenty percent of global reserves in U.S. dollars. Right. What does that mean? What, what what's going to fill that void? What is this alternative currency or basket of currencies going to look like? Well, there are several options. One option, and I don't know which way it'll go. I don't think there's any way to tell. One option would be that a particular currency, and it would have to be the Chinese currency, uh, will replace the dollar the way the dollar replaced. Well, the why, why would it have to be the? Why would it have to be the Chinese currency? No, no, no. It, on the... that, that's one option. Would be the Chinese. Okay. Doesn't have to. Okay. Be. Here's an alternative that the and this depends on the Chinese being willing to do this is to work a collective alternative. Some, give it a name, make it up, and it would be composed of some kind of agreement among the BRICS, or for that matter, the BRICS plus Europe. If, if the Europe alliance with the United States begins to fracture, and there is more pressure for that in Europe than I have ever seen before, my my first language is German. My second language is French. English is my third language, even though I was born and raised in the United States. I read German and French newspapers, and I have never seen the level of bitterness about what has happened to the European capitalist economy as a consequence of this war with Russia. So you've got a big disconnect between a governmental apparatus that is gung-ho for the war and a corporate apparatus that is not. And that, that, that fight has not yet broken out. If it does, I don't know whether the G7 will be something we'll be talking about a year from now compared to the way we talk to now. But it could be the Chinese currency. It could be a collective basket of currencies. That remains to be worked out. And frankly, one of the reasons it hasn't is because it's going too fast. Historically, this kind of a change should have taken place slowly, gradually, allowing all the different players to have the time and the space to work out a transition that would be relatively smooth. This is going so fast that it's kind of ad hoc, and you, you're going to wash, my guess is, hemming and hawing and backwards and forwards as other countries fill in the decline of the dollar. And by the way, don't sell, don't sell short the inability of the United States to fund its deficits. It's not going to have China and Japan willing to expend unspeakable amounts of money in order to manage their currency exchange rates and thereby fill the American government's coffers. If the American government cannot borrow the way it has in the past, then it will have to raise interest rates more than it has in the past. And the effects of that on the American economy are as incalculable as it is important, apparently, not to ask that question. 
this leads to the next part of our discussion, which is about your new book, uh, Examining Capitalism Critically. Now, you've, you've mentioned several times in this interview already that the American empire is declining, quote-unquote. So let's, let's tie these themes together. Why is it declining? What can be done to reform this decline, if indeed that is even a priority? What is wrong with our society, which I guess is the nature of your book? And what can we do to critically analyze capitalism and fix it in the U.S.? Okay, a tall order, but let me try. Um, I think the best way to understand what is happening is to remember what the history of capitalism has always been. Capitalism uses the resources, physical, human, uh, in whatever area it exists, and then it moves on. You know, capitalism begins in 17th century England. It moves from there to Western Europe. Slowly, the great British empire built on capitalism shrinks. And the European challenger, Germany, and the old British colony, America, in the 19th century, challenge it. And the core center of capitalism leaves England and never goes back to this day. Now look at it here in the United States. Capitalism grows in New England. Then it leaves New England. If you've ever visited New England, I live in that part of the country, it's still got the remnants, the four-story brick factories that are now empty because nobody has had any business to do in them, but they were once the center of textiles and furniture and clothing and all the rest of it. And where did they go? To the Midwest. And what do we call the Midwest in the United States today? The Rust Belt, because capitalism left. And then it went to the South and the Southwest, and then to Canada and Mexico, and then to China and Brazil and India. The reason the United States is, is in a decline is because capitalism has abandoned it. Capitalism's core went to China and the BRICS countries because the wages were cheaper, the regulation was less, and the markets were growing. And that has been the rule of capitalism always. When the United States was the place where it was growing, the place to which capitalism came, it was a good ride up. But when you're the site of where it's leaving, it's not a good ride down. Just ask New England or the Midwest or any of the others. So the first reason is not about countries. It's about how capitalism works. We trained the people who moved the jobs from Cincinnati to Shanghai. They are the products of a capitalism. And when you're left, you get called the Rust Belt. In 1970, Detroit had 2 million people. Today, the population of Detroit is 680,000. That's what happened. And that's what's happening to the United States. And you're going to see with AI, artificial intelligence, this process taking another several steps forward. And guess what? The United States is moving to what it used to think was the way other countries were. A small group of well-off people living in charmed cities, 
in gated communities and a mass of poor people living in the suburbs, in the rural areas. That kind of dichotomy is found in many parts of the world, and that's what's evolving here. Look at the last 40 years. The distribution of income and wealth in this country has systematically gotten worse. Even after president after president points that out and says he's committed, nothing changes. The process continues. It's like listening to them saying, we're going to bring manufacturing back. They never did it. These are verbalisms that cover over a reality in which capitalism has moved its dynamic center away from North America, away from Japan and Western Europe to, yep, the BRICS countries, because they're inheriting the, the future of capitalism at this point. And that has to be faced. Let me just provide a counter argument, Dr. Wolf, to that, if I may, uh, which is that the United Nations makes its forecast for population growth for all the countries in the world, which they update periodically. But for the U.S., they're projecting that over the coming decades, net migration will still be positive, meaning that there will be more people migrating to the U.S. than people leaving the U.S. and emigrating to other countries. And first of all, let's assume that this forecast is is reasonable and agreeable. Uh, we can debate this if we like, but let's just, for the purpose of this discussion, assume that it is agreeable. If the argument here is that the U.S. empire is indeed declining, well, people vote with their feet, Dr. Wolf. Why would people still want to move to the U.S. if that is the case? Well, the answer is, as all studies of migration have shown, migration happens because of a push factor and a pull factor. You have to have them both. You have to push people out of where they are coming from, and you have to pull people into where they are going. People do not, my parents were migrants. My father was French, my mother was German. Why did they come to the United States? Was it the pull factor? No, it was the push factor. And in my history, close as I have been to migrants, it's overwhelmingly the push factor. And what do I mean? Well, if you take a look, particularly at the Latin American sources of migration, which is by far the largest source of migration, they are leaving economies that are in a disaster and have been. They are leaving places of warfare, not the kind of clash of armies, but the continual guerrilla warfare, government warfare. For them, let's remember, to leave your home is to leave where your folks are, where your church is, where your schooling is, where your boyfriend and girlfriend are, where you know the language. These are, And where are you going? To a country you have no idea what this is going to be like. This is extraordinarily dangerous. And there's plenty of reason to worry that where you're going is going to be hostile towards you because you don't have a white skin, because you aren't white and Protestant and you aren't educated in the universe. Whoa. So my argument would be the disaster for the United States has been just at a time when it can't handle its own working class 
the derivatives, the driver of capitalism wants that cheap labor, takes advantage of the disastrous situations in Latin America, and then brings them in. And by the way, it becomes the most contentious issue for about half the country. The struggle politically is the demonization of the immigrant. This is not strengthening American capitalism. It is weakening it. Here's the irony. For four years now, we've been talking about a labor shortage. And until this last year, we've been pushing immigrants out of the country, blocking them from coming in. We have children going back to work. We are loosening our child labor laws because we don't know where to get cheap labor from. It's a very strange moment, but I don't think the voting with your feet proves anything unless you can show it isn't uh, the push factor, it is the pull factor. And I think the evidence goes exactly the other way. On the topic of AI, one of the concerns that people have of this AI revolution is that it will take away a lot of our jobs. And in fact, Goldman Sachs has projected that over the coming years, as many as 300 million jobs globally will be destroyed by AI. And so people are thinking of solutions to this. People are worried, and rightly so. One of the solutions is to offer universal basic income to everybody, UBI. So let's hone in on this idea of UBI. Is this a practical solution to the prospect of AI laying off a lot of people? Do you endorse this solution? No, um, I'm an opponent of the UBI. I understand uh, the good motivation that lies behind many of the proposals, so I'm not against the motivation, but I don't think that's a good solution. And let me explain by going back to the issue of AI. AI is one of a long list of technical breakthroughs robots, computers, before that, electricity, before that, atomic energy, before that, the machine, and so on. In every one of these cases, AI included, here's what we have. We have an invention that will allow people to do twice as much work, just to take a simple example, with the new invention compared to what they were able to do before. And now let's follow the logic. For a capitalist, this is a wonderful opportunity. If I have a machine, AI, and I can do with 50 workers what I used to have to buy uh, 100 workers to achieve, I'm gonna do exactly what Goldman Sachs assumes. I am going to produce the same amount of output with half the number of workers. I will sell the output at the same price. I'll make the same revenue. But the one thing that will have changed, half of my wage costs are not there anymore. So me as a capitalist, I get to keep the portion of the revenue that I used to use to pay half my workers is now mine. So AI has proven to be very profitable for me to install. And since I'm a capitalist, I'm not responsible for the 50 people I fired. They have to go. They're on their own. All right. Now, here you get me as a critic of capitalism. There's obviously an alternative. Mathematics teaches us that all the time. Here's the alternative. You take everybody who's working and you put them on half time. 
then they can produce exactly as much as they did because the AI will allow them to do in four hours a day what before it took them eight hours a day. Wow. Now you have the same output with the same labor force. You're earning the same revenue, which means you can pay everybody what you did before, earn exactly what profit you earned before. That would be an alternative way to handle any technical in uh, invention. But here's the difference. Instead of it boosting the profit of the employer, it would boost the leisure of the workers who are the majority here. So if you had a democratically governed technical change, you would give the leisure to the large group rather than the profit to the small group. This would be the kind of progress which a critique of capitalism allows you to identify and move toward. What Goldman Sachs is doing is thinking like we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, without understanding what the critique of capitalism is, which would have allowed them to understand there were more options than those it sees. So all it has is alarms about all the unemployed. Uh, Dr. Wolf, let me just touch on entrepreneurship and surplus value uh, quickly. Now, the theory of surplus value was popularized by Karl Marx, and generally speaking, it, it states that the worker is sometimes, if not most of the time, exploited by his employer because the value he provides to his employer is greater than what he is being paid. And so there's this surplus value of labor that's being created in our capitalist system. Now, I used to work for other people, other companies, and now I work for myself. And I'm not saying I was exploited by any means. I've been treated quite well in my career, but I have noticed firsthand, and I will say this, that sometimes we as workers provide more value than what we are being paid. And so when this happens, I, I would argue that the solution to this declining American empire that we're talking about is what I'm doing right now, more entrepreneurship and more capitalism. How would you respond to that? Yeah, here's the problem. If we're going to have a conversation about capitalism, which I support, then we have to be aware that we don't all agree on that. I mean, let me be as, as straightforward as I can. Every per young person learns that the word love, a very important word in our language, is understood differently by different people. Be careful who you say love to, because she or he may mean something quite different from what you mean. And in there are lots of problems you're going to have if you don't kind of sort that out. Well, it's the same with capitalism. For me, this is what I do for a living. Capitalism is a particular organization of production, such that a small group of people, an owner, an investor, a board of directors, major shareholders, whichever form it takes, makes the, all the key business decisions, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits for a large mass of people who are hired to do the bulk of the work. That's, for me, capitalism. It's possible that people will decide they don't want to work in that system. I would applaud that. I don't like this system. I'm not in favor of it. I would like to see people use other ways of organizing it. In fact, 
I understand that millions of Americans, not just now, but throughout the history of this country, have walked away from working for somebody else in order to work for themselves. I understand that as a kind of protest against capitalism. It is not capitalism when there's a market. When the New York Times talks about capitalism as a free market system, you know, if they were taking a course from me or from anybody else I know, right, left or center, they'd get an F. Why? Because markets existed in slavery. That's what slaves were, bought and sold in markets. Market is not unique to capitalism. In feudalism, there were all kinds of markets all the time. Being able to start your own business is not a peculiarity of capitalism. It existed all through history in a thousand different forms. But what is unique to capitalism is this organization of the employer related to the employee. Feudalism didn't have that. It had lord and serf. Slavery didn't have it. It had master and slave. Capitalism is unique because of the employer-employee. And as capitalism declines, which is what we're living through, you're, you're quite right, David. You're right. Millions of Americans will have little choice but to try to make it on their own, partly out of a desire, partly out of a loss of options, because that that's part of what happens when a system breaks down, people start scurrying, looking for others. I hope that socialism will be one of those places people go to, a collective community, a worker co-op, which, by the way, are growing all over the world, in part for the same reasons that self-employment is growing. And it takes just as much entrepreneurial skill to set up a worker co-op as it does to go into business for yourself. Not the same exact problems, but comparable ones. And you can see it with all the difficulties worker co-ops have alongside the difficulties that self-employed people have. But you are seeing another aspect of the decline of capitalism when you notice the number of young people going into or trying to go into business for themselves. I'll just finish off here. We can learn a lot more from you by reading your books and going to your website and going to Democracy at Work, which you told me offline you founded a number of years ago. Uh, why have you founded Democracy at Work and what is your mission here? Our mission is to say, look, Capitalism has its virtues. Capitalism has its achievements. We're not making a cheap shot here. We're not interested in that. We're interested in, in, in doing something that human beings have always done. Can we do better than what we have? And our answer, my answer is, of course we can. We are glad that we gave up slavery because we could do better than that. And we're glad as a human race, we gave up feudalism. Capitalism also, can, we can do better. The idea that capitalism is the end of history is preposterous. The burden isn't on me to argue that it isn't. The burden is on anybody who, having seen all the different phases of human history, should think this one that we happen to be in is the end of the process. No, I think we can do better. In particular, 
I'm a Democrat with a small d, not the Democratic Party. I like democracy. I like the, the notion of one person, one vote, and we get together as a community of equals to make the decisions. And I would like to see that in the workplace, which is where it has always been excluded. You go to work, you cross the threshold into your factory, your office, your store, and suddenly a small group of people you don't elect tell you what to do. Take the fruit of your labor and decide whether to sell it, to who to sell it, the price at which it is sold, and what to do with the net proceeds. I don't like that. I don't like it because it's undemocratic. I find it bizarre that I get to vote for the mayor of the city I live in or the congressperson, but I don't get to vote for the person where I work. Five days a week, I go to work. The best hours of the day, I'm at work. If I believe in democracy, why isn't it at work? Where is it written in the Bible or anywhere else that there can't be democracy at the workplace? I think we'd be more productive and happier as a, as a people if we had a democratic workplace. And I think half the motivation of people who quit their capitalist jobs, maybe to start a startup with a few friends or on their own, is a bit of that too. They prefer the democratically, at least closer to democracy that way than the anonymous cubicle in a tall high rise where you are what you are in most workplaces in the country. Interesting. And your new book, uh, when is that coming out, Dr. Wolf? We hope by the end of the year, it'll be called uh, probably Understanding Capitalism critically. But as I say, it's not a cheap shot criticism. It's pointing out flaws that most of us have in fact experienced, and then suggesting this movement towards worker co-ops, if you like, or a democratic workplace as a solution to pursue to make things better for ourselves than they are at this moment. Dr. Wolf, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. You've and I appreciate the opportunity to have this kind of conversation. I really think it's a social service and that you're to be commended uh, for, for organizing it. Thank you. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very honored to be speaking with, uh, with a great mind like yourself, despite the fact that many people would view your views as alternative, but it's important to learn from all sides of the argument. I think and so. I'm very sure that the audience will benefit from this discussion. So thank you again. And for the viewers, thank you for watching. Don't forget to subscribe and follow the links to Dr. Wolf's work in the description down below.